morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Matthew chapter 6. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, and we just are starting chapter 6 now. Uh, we finished up chapter 5 last week. This is the beginning of a new portion of the Sermon on the Mount. You'll see that there's some sort of some new things that Jesus is talking about. He's taking this, um, it's probably why this chapter is broken up the way that it is, where we start six right here, because Jesus is going to start talking to us about some new aspect of what it is to follow him, and it's a very important one. Um, so it's, uh, we'll look at it together, Matthew 6, verses 1 through 4. I'll put it up on the screen there. Here's Jesus teaching to his disciples. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret." And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. So this, like I said, is the beginning of a new section, portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's one in which Jesus is talking about something very important to being a disciple, it turns out. And that is motivations. What motivates the works done by his disciples? What motivates us? Why we actually do the things that we do? Uh, Jesus is somewhat unusual from other religious teachers in that he says that what, like, uh, it's not just what you do that's important to him, but it's the reasons why you seek to do it in the first place that is important. That that's what really sets apart a disciple of Jesus. It's not just the actions and the things that they do, but the reasons that they're seeking to do those things in the first place and the manner in which they seek to do those things. Motivations are a really tricky thing. It's hard to know motivations. It's hard for us to even know our own motivations, honestly, because we can fool ourselves. It seems like it's easier sometimes to feel like you can tell the motivations of other people even than sometimes what's going on in your own heart while you really do some of the things that you do. And sometimes we're surprised in life when we come to find out that the reason we do something isn't what we thought it was. Now, uh, this is a portion of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is going to talk about how to do the things that are good, but to do them in a way that is good. And he's going to look at three things that he'll sort of give us examples. And these, things, these three things are like central to what it is to be holy, to be a person who loves God and serves God. Okay, one of them is giving to the poor. That's what we'll look at this morning. Next week is prayer. And the week after that is fasting or really also discipline. The idea of like being disciplined through giving up things like fasting as a religious person. These are things that people associate with religious people throughout the world. People seeking to serve God in some way or another. Giving to those who are in need, praying, talking to the divine, and then actually giving up things, fasting, giving, giving, like ignoring things for a period of self-discipline so as to connect with God, right? So he uses each one of these things. We're going to look at this every week. We're going to look at this, this one verse right here as the theme for this whole next couple of weeks. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. It's dangerous, apparently, because we can actually do the right things, but for the wrong reasons, and in doing that, not be doing the right things. It can invalidate the good things that we're doing if we do them for the wrong reasons, Jesus seems to say. 
So when you talk about motivation, that's a pretty tough question for a lot of us to ask ourselves. What motivates us? What keeps us going? What motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning and motivates you? What motivates you in your family, in your friendships, at your job? Why are you here? Not here in existence, but why are you here in this room? Why are you at church right now? What motivates you? What brings you here? Is it because it's a habit? Is it because you desire it for something? Is it because it's simply honoring to God? What is the reason why you're even here right now? Why do you, if you do follow God, why? Why do you follow God? Why do you care what the Sermon on the Mount talks about? Why do you want to do, if you do, let's say, any of the things that Jesus is saying? What motivation is behind that for you? I was taking a personality uh, profile once. Um, I was on a retreat. It was, um, it, was on, it was at my last church. I was on an elder retreat. So it was like all the leaders of the church and then the pastors. And I went away on my own to take a personality test, not because they made me. I realized in the first service that makes me look like they were like, you know what, you need to go take a personality test. And they didn't. But I went away and I took one anyway. And, uh, and I came back and we were having dinner that night and I brought up one of the questions that I thought was so interesting. And the question on the personality test was this, do you believe that most people have good intentions or do you believe that most people have bad intentions? Think about that for a second. And I asked the table and exactly half of the people there were like, without even thinking, you don't even have to really think that hard about your answer to that question. You know right away, oh, people have bad intentions. Or, oh, no, people have good intentions, right? And one of the reasons why you probably think that is because you also associate that with yourself. You go, no, I'm not excluded, right? I know, I don't want, right, I don't want good things. So nobody else does either, probably. Or, no, I know that I want good things, and I know that other people generally deep down just want to do the right, they're just trying to do the right thing. They just maybe don't always know what it is or aren't always clear on that thing. And so to even see like a group of people, like leaders, church leaders, totally split evenly one way or another. I think that speaks to the fact that like some of us are in one camp or when we talk about motivations, we assume that maybe they're good. And when some of us talk about motivations, we assume that they are as evil as evil can get, right? And that that's what's really driving everybody in some way. And this is a hard thing to talk about even in our society because we can't manage people's motivations. We can't really tell people what to be driven by and what to be motivated by. The most that we can do is tell them how to act and what to do. We can pass laws and we can have norms and we can say, this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do. But we can't even really try to tackle the issue on a large scale of why we should do the things we do or how we should feel. How should you feel towards people? How should you think of other people? And the moment that we try doing that on a larger scale, the moment that it backfires on us because you can't do that with a big group of people. And ultimately, the reason why this is a hard thing, for many of us, we get to this part of the Sermon on the Mount, we go, oh, Jesus, come on, give me a break for once, is because asking about motivations is like asking about knowing really ourselves, right? This is ultimately about looking inward. The Bible is both a, a window to God and a mirror to us. This is the mirror point of saying, okay, do I want to look inward and do I want to know myself? A very well-known um, pastor named uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said this about this passage in, uh, in Matthew. He said, the natural man thinks he knows himself and thereby reveals his basic trouble. He evades self-examination because to know oneself is ultimately the most painful piece of knowledge that a man can ever acquire. And here is a chapter that brings us face to face with ourselves and enables us to see ourselves exactly as we are. 
So for many, this is very painful. Self-awareness, self-understanding. And so many people, he says, the natural man finds it's much easier to just say, I already know myself, I don't need to think much more. And so Jesus says this, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. First word, beware. First word of this portion of the Sermon on the Mount sets the tone for the entire portion is beware. Beware means look out, danger, alert, alarm. This verse is a lighthouse on top of a bunch of rocks saying, look out for what is here. Avoid it because it will bring you peril if you don't. Beware. This is harsh language. This is extreme language. Why should we beware? What's the death? What's the danger? The danger is this. You do good things and you don't get a reward. That doesn't seem so bad, right? Well, it's kind of like doing a job, expecting payment, and then at the end, finding out that there's no payment because you forgot some technicality. You forgot to check some box or do something. Oh, sorry. Yeah, you're supposed to check that box. Maybe tomorrow, right? What would you say to somebody in that situation? You'd say, you're going to want to make sure that you check that box. You're going to want to make sure that you keep in mind that technicality. Beware. If you do this, you won't get a reward. So you'll do it the whole time thinking you're getting one and you won't actually get one. Jesus is cautioning them and warning them. It's interesting that he feels that he needs to do this right now. He's just talked for a whole chapter to the disciples on so many aspects of being a disciple of his, of following him, and now what he's saying to them next is, so now beware that as you do these things, you don't do them before other people in order to be seen by them. Because if you do, you won't have a reward from your father. He goes on and says this to explain it. And this is this week's example. It's giving to the needy. He says, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. In the Jewish culture, you know, oftentimes when we talk a lot about the ministry of Jesus, it's easy to maybe get a negative view of the Jewish culture because we're talking a lot about Jewish religious leaders who have abused the things that God's, God has given them. And that would be an inaccurate way to view these people overall. Because ultimately, the community that Jesus came from and that he's a part of is this really beautiful, wonderful community that does an incredibly good job of taking care of each other. So uh, the idea, and we'll see this when we get to the, well, he says it even right here, when you give to the needy, right, he is assuming that you're going to give to the needy. So those are the ones you really got to look for, is when Jesus just assumes, when it's a given, when he doesn't even explain that you ought to do it or why you should do it, he just says, when you give to the needy, because it is so, uh, so synonymous with being a follower of God, a person who wants to serve God, that you would care for his other children. Okay, imagine that you're a parent and you have two adult children and one of them has fallen on hard times and the other child says, well, you're my brother, you're my sister, I must help take care of you. You would feel as a parent proud to know that that is what your family looks like, that you've raised your kids in a way that one of them says, I will help the other because that's what a brother and a sister do for each other. In the very same way, 
It is completely assumed within the Jewish culture that you give to the poor and to those in need. There should be no reason why they would have to go anywhere else because they would get everything that they need from those within their own community. In fact, there were rules that rabbis had to pass to limit how much you could give to people who were in need. There was a rule that said that you couldn't give more than 20% of your income to people in need because people were so generous and they so often gave. So the problem here is not with the overall generosity. We are called to give and take care of one another. The problem is with the way that people did it because the majority of giving was probably done anonymously or so regularly without much thought or fanfare given to it that it just happened. But then there were those that made a big deal about it. Oftentimes they were those who gave a lot, those who gave sacrificially of themselves. They just wanted to make sure, you know, just for the glory of God, they wanted to make sure that everyone knew exactly how that happened. And those people that had figured out a way to help care for others while themselves looking good are the hypocrites that Jesus is talking about. It's the religious leaders, or it's just a few people in the group of, of, of this Jewish community who were essentially starting to make everyone else look bad, starting to make you question the motives of everybody probably. And we all know what that's like in the church, a couple of bad apples, right? And then all of a sudden it's like, what is the church like? And what are the motivations of all the people there as a part of the church body? That's one of the things that we do. I've known people, um, I, you know, not here, of course, but I've known people in church, I've been here long enough, I've known people in churches who, they always do such a good job of uh, when they give, you know, or when they help, or when they do it, they want to make sure that, that it's to something so clear and so obvious, maybe it's broken out in a certain way or so tangible and specific so that everyone knows exactly how they helped or who they helped, or there are those who, when they help, they just want to make sure that you know about it. You know, so that God gets the glory. But what is known of that person is what? It is that they are so generous and they are such a good helper of the community and of people. These are the people that Jesus calls this word and the word is hypocrite. The definition of a hypocrite is this. It is an actor. That's it. It's somebody who puts on a mask, gets on a stage and pretends to be something that they aren't. Within the world of acting, it's not a bad thing. Here's where I insert obligatory parenting story. I hang out with my kids. At any given moment when I'm hanging out with my kids, my son will say, I'll be right back. And he will leave. And he will run upstairs. Now, with kids this age, sometimes, usually that means they have to go to the bathroom because they don't think about having to go to the bathroom until the instant that they have to go to the bathroom more than anything else, and then they just run away. So you're used to them stopping what they're doing, going, I gotta go to the bathroom, and then they disappear. But sometimes he's gone for a really long time, and then he comes back, kinda does this, and he's dressed up like something. And it could be anything, but he decided as we were playing, as we were doing something, and it could be anything that we're doing, he decided, this would be better if I was dressed as Batman. And then he goes away and for 10 minutes and then he comes back and he's Batman and he comes back and he's a Ninja Turtle and he's a fighter pilot and he's a lion or a dragon or whatever. And if you've ever seen us out, like in public life, sometimes you've seen like a dragon or a lion walking around because that's just, right now it's a, it's a lion, it's a tiger costume. Just wears it, all, wears it all the time or oftentimes. And it's great, right? Puts it on, gets dressed up, has more fun. I don't, and then, and then, you know, if you, oh, where did Tegan go, right? Like, it's okay, 
It's me. It's me. It's Tegan. <laughs> Don't worry. Don't freak out, right? Does it every time, right? Now, that's great and all. What would be really sad is if my son actually thought that nobody liked the real Tegan. My daughter thought nobody liked the real Davy, and that's why they were dressing up in those costumes. That's why we were, they were being that way. There's nothing better if you're an actor. There's nothing better than being able to get up on a stage and completely and totally embody someone else or something else. We love it. It is convincing. It takes us out of the moment and transports us, transports us into where they are. There's nothing worse than a person needing to do that to be seen a certain way by other people. Nothing is so distasteful to us than feeling like we're being tricked into, into, tr being, being into seeing someone as something that they aren't really, just because they believe that it will make them look better in the eyes of so many others. This was a hypocrite. Now, this is a term that we've essentially been on a collision course with since we started the Sermon on the Mount because people associate hypocrisy with religious people. Because every time you talk about being holy, being pious, doing the things Jesus talks about, you, you, you confront that possibility of hypocrisy, of those taking all the teachings that he said and doing them, but doing them for the wrong reasons. And what Jesus is saying here, and why is this hypocritical? Why is this pretending what these people are doing? Because it's simple. It's not just because they're trying to do the right thing. It's not even because they're trying to do the right thing and they're blowing it sometimes, because that happens all the time. It's because they're making an effort to show people that they are something that they are not. This is where hypocrisy comes in. It's when you make an effort to represent yourself as something better than you really are, to be able to do more than you could probably do, to have motivations that probably aren't the motivations that you have. And people discovered at one point, and this was incredibly uh, amazing to them, that you can do good things, Jesus things, God things, pious things, and that you could actually look better as well that it would actually improve your, your standing in the sight of other people. And Jesus' caution is this. He says, beware of being these people. He doesn't say beware of the hypocrites. Hey, disciples, listen, beware of the hypocrites. Watch out, they're everywhere, they're no good, just don't even, don't even deal with them. He says don't be them. He seems to know that as we set out on this journey of discipleship, that we will probably get to a point where we will be tempted to be hypocritical. That we will be tempted to start characterizing ourselves in the way we live, not according to what we actually do or our real motives, but by what we think people want to see, what we think they will reward, how we'll look in their eyes. So what they are pretending is that they care for the poor, when really they care for themselves. That they're giving for the sake of God and his kingdom, when really they're giving for the sake of themselves and for their own kingdom. You can, you can tell when people are kind of doing this, right? It's something you see a lot in elections, okay? If it's an election time, somebody's running for president, and you open up the paper, you, okay, you don't open a paper, you go online, and you go, you go, oh look, he was at a soup kitchen. That's so awesome that he cares for people and goes to soup kitchens. No, that's not what you think. I mean, I don't think that's what most people think. Chances are he didn't go to soup kitchens every Saturday before that. Chances are his Thanksgivings before running for president weren't spent, and this is every candidate I've ever seen, weren't spent you know, running to feed the hungry or serving the homeless at a soup kitchen or at a, at a shelter. Chances are they weren't spent there. They were probably spent in the Bahamas or something. 
It's why you, uh, and what you know really is that there's a person working for that person with a list of things that says, okay, we gotta go here, and then we gotta go here, and then you gotta shake this guy's hand, and you gotta go here, and you gotta go here. And what's at every one of these? The one thing that it's at every place is a camera, something to record what's happening so that the rest of us can see that they really care. And, we're, and maybe some would say, you know, like, like, well, yeah, but you can tell by who they go see and what they go do, what their priorities are, what they care about. No, you can't. Because there's a person with a list saying, if you go here, these people will vote for you. And if you go here, these people will vote for you. And if you go here, these people will vote for you, right? And you can't trust it. And that's just something that you probably know is true of that whole thing, right? And so the time in which you're supposed to be deciding who you think should lead us, you're also more skeptical than you've ever been about, who should, about how you can decide. And that's why the greatest thing is to watch what someone's like after they're in office, after they're president. I think it's been so incredible to watch George W. Bush after being the president and to see the things that he's done with his time. A guy who went out of office with very low like approval ratings um, by most Americans, and then to find that he spends like the majority of his time, he, he, he makes paintings of people. There's a, there's a family in our church, the Solheims, I went over to their house, and they said this painting of our son, who is a wounded veteran, George W. Bush painted of our son to raise money for veterans and to show his appreciation for their work. And that he's got a coffee table book out, and you can like get it and stuff, but I'm pretty sure George W. Bush doesn't need money from a coffee table book. He can do whatever he wants with his time. He can do whatever he wants. He's got nobody else to impress. I'm pretty sure when he left, he was like, I got nobody that I'm gonna impress now. He's got a ranch. He could go live on a ranch and do whatever he wants all day. And I'm sure he spends a lot of time doing what he wants, but what he chooses to do with that time is what tells you a lot about the person, right? Someone who says like, well, okay, we're all gonna have to say that we value people who serve for us and people who give for us and people who sacrifice for us, right? Especially at a time when we want people to like us and vote for us and care about who we are and what we think. But what someone does in the moments when they're not being looked at by everyone and when the opinions of other people simply don't matter tell you who a person really probably is, what their priorities really are. And this is something Jesus is speaking to. Now, there's all kinds of examples of this kind of hypocrisy and what it looks like for someone not to be hypocritical. There's a Nike ad that came out in the 90s of Charles Barkley. And in this ad, it was a commercial, and he said, I'm a basketball player, I'm not a, does anybody know what he said? Role model. He said, I'm a basketball player, I'm not a role model. I get paid to dunk the ball, I don't get paid to raise your kids. That's what he said. And it was because he wasn't a very great guy and people were complaining about him and saying, you're not a good role model. And he said, well, you're never gonna believe it, folks, but I didn't get into this to be a role model and to raise your kids. I got into this because I like playing basketball and I really like making lots of money. And we all hear that and go, yeah, that makes sense. That's probably why most people are doing it. In fact, I I think that most professional athletes probably didn't get into professional athletics because they just really had a burning desire to be a role model. And so you hear that kind of honesty and it's somewhat refreshing, even if you don't agree with the way the person lives their life because you go, at least they're being consistent with who they are, right? One of the things that has been crazy to watch is the stuff that's been going on in like the entertainment industry right now with sexual assault cases. Because what's happened is it's blown the lid off of the, this incredibly toxic environment built on people being victimized for their desire to do whatever they can do to be successful and to be famous and then other people that benefit from that process and they're in control and manipulate through that. Now, uh, there, was a, uh, there was a point several years ago where George Clooney was giving an acceptance speech at the Oscars. And this is what he said in his acceptance speech. He said, we are a little bit out of touch in Hollywood every once in a while, I think. 
it's probably a good thing. We're the ones who talked about AIDS when it was just being whispered, and we talked about civil rights when it wasn't really popular. This academy, this group of people gave Hattie McDaniel an Oscar in 1939 when blacks were still sitting in the backs of theaters. I'm proud to be a part of this academy, proud to be a part of this community, and proud to be out of touch. Now, what he meant by that was we're out of touch because we're willing to talk about things that other people won't talk about. We're willing to be honest about things even if we know everybody else disagrees with us. And if you know anything about the way that the entire industry that he's a part of works, you know that that's completely not true. That they really don't talk about something until enough people are behind it and enough people support it that you know that you can make a movie about it and probably make money doing it. That these are not, this was not the way, he's not characterizing things accurately. And, and the reason I bring this up is this, because you can be an actor and you can be an entertainer and you can entertain people and that's great. But the moment you stand up on that platform that that's given you and you say, I am now the moral authority in America. I am now going to tell you how to live and what is right and what is wrong and you should listen to it because I know more about the world than you do. The moment someone does that, they set their, themselves up for hypocrisy. And the reason why there's an aspect of what's going on right now that people find, frankly, to be ironic is because it is. Because when a group of people says, oh no, look to us, we're the example that you should follow, and then all these questions come up, well, did you know about this? Did you know about this? Did you know about this? And you'll never guess what, no one knew, right? It's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy isn't in falling short. It isn't in sinning. It's coming out and saying, I'm something that I'm not. You should give me credit for something that you shouldn't give me credit for, really. That I'm worth that, that I've earned that in some way. Now, some of us hear this teaching of Jesus, and we go, but doesn't Jesus say, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount even, that we should want people to look at us? He says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, you're a city on a hill. People should look at you and give you attention. This is something that trips us up because we go, are these things consistent? And they are, and here's why. Because being a follower of Jesus requires something that is very hard for most people. This thing called balance. This thing's called non-extremism, right? And that's different from being devout. Being extreme is saying, Jesus wants all of this, or he wants all of this, and I'm not going to worry about that. But what Jesus calls us to do is to say, well, then how do I live this way as a, as, a, as a light to the world, as a city on a hill, salt to the earth, but how do I also live in a way that isn't self-glorifying? Because here's what he said back in Matthew 5. He said, to live as a city on a hill, that they might glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's why he says to do it. You live that way so that people will look at you and glorify God and say, wow, that God is great, which is very different from what the hypocrites are doing, which is glorifying themselves. They're living in a way that glorifies themselves. Now, oh, throughout the course of history, as Christianity through history has bounced back and forth between these two extremes constantly, we've gone, let's all be monks. Let's just turn away from everything. We don't want anyone to, to see the things that we're doing. We don't want any kind of glorification or credit of any kind. We'll live totally simple, humble lives of, of, of often discipline and pain. Or go to the other extreme and go, no, no, no. The more they see how, how rich we are and how big everything is and how famous we can be and how all of it looks good, the more they'll see the light that we are to the world. 
And we, and we bounce back and forth between asceticism and glorification, self-glorification. And really what Jesus calls us to is something that is not asceticism for its sake, for self-glorification, because we equate in this shallow, one-dimensional sense if we're big and famous and get lots of credit and people give us attention. And if people like me, they will like my God. And here's why. Because if you know anything about the way the world works, then you know that people do not very easily give God credit for things, Okay. People do not want to give God credit for things. That's the problem that started all the way back in the garden, right? We are not very good at giving God the credit that he's due. And so if we think, oh, all I have to do is be great in the eyes of other people, and then if I'm a Christian, they'll see that it's because of God. That's not the way it works. That's not the way people work. It takes something pretty explicit often for people to believe that God was behind something, or at least that you're giving him credit for something and not taking it yourself. And so it's naive for many of us to think that we can just get all the attention on ourselves as we serve the poor and as we do these pious things, and that in doing that, that God will be glorified. Because reality, being realistic, being honest about the way the world works, living in a dark world like we live in, people won't make that connection unless often we make it for them. So we cannot just live with that in mind alone. It's this thing called divine plagiarism, at least I call it that, And it's this, it's taking credit for what's God's. It's letting God do the work and us taking the credit and thinking that somehow that will be the same. But it's not the same, it's plagiarism. It's saying, I did this, I wrote this, I made this, I get credit for this good thing, instead of allowing it to go to God. And sometimes it can be very difficult for God to give credit, to get credit. Sometimes we have to do pretty extreme things. And he says that the hypocrite will get a reward. He says they will receive their reward if they live this way, but their reward is simple. They will be praised by others, and that's all they'll get. So they'll do these good things, and they'll be praised by others. Jesus is very realistic. He's saying that is what will happen. They will receive the very thing that they want, which is for other people to praise them and appreciate them and admire them and glorify them. And then that's it. Then it's over. That's all they're going to get. Like I said, people realize at some point, especially in certain cultures, that piety is admired, that it's respected. Oftentimes, people admire and respect it because they themselves would never do it even. People go, I really respect and admire the way that you live. I can never do that. In fact, it's easier to kind of respect you and admire you and not expect myself to do it. And people realized at one point, wait a second, I can give away my money and I can somehow benefit from that? Well, yeah, I mean, people like that kind of thing. I can serve the poor, something that costs, comes at cost to me, and I can benefit from that? Yeah, you could. I can live below the normal standard for someone in my place in life. I can have this job, I can make this kind of money, I can live in this area, and instead of living here, I can live here, I can choose to live less than I ought to because of what I give and sacrifice, and that somehow even in doing that, I can get something out of it? Yes, you can, if you do it in a way that others look at you and glorify you you can still come out with the praise of others. We even live in a society in which we're all sort of on this journey of, of you know, I, I, I want to be actualized as the best version of myself that I can be. I, need, I want to discover who I ultimately am and how I am meant to live and how I am meant to make the biggest impact on this world as myself. And a lot of times part of that journey is 
helping and serving and sacrificing. But it's because of the person, me, that it produces at the end. And even that, we can then look to receive praise because we've done this thing, we've become this thing, rather than just simply doing it for the sake of God. And so this is what Jesus says to them. He says, but when you give to the needy, again, notice that he's assuming they just will. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your giving may be in secret. So the first thing is that he assumes that they will give to the needy. He doesn't say, don't give, don't be sacrificial in that way like like those people, that that's the problem. He says, no, of course you're going to give to the needy. It doesn't change that. But he says that you're going to do so in a way that is in secret so that your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand is doing. There's a reason Jesus says this. Jesus uses extreme language to make points sometimes. When we were talking about sin, he said, if your right hand causes you to sin, get rid of it, right? Why would he say something like that? Does that often happen to us that our right hand causes us to sin and then it just falls off? No. Is it easy to do something with your right hand without your left hand knowing? No, it's not. It's actually the most unnatural thing for us to even try to wrap our minds around. Why would he say that? Because he's saying this isn't just going to happen. Just like what he said was sin. Listen, it's not going to be like this sin came in my life and it just, it, just, it just felt like that part of my life just fell into the ocean. And good riddance. No. You're going to have to cut it off. You're going to have to get rid of it so that worse things don't happen. You will have to stop and think and take very decisive action to make sure that this thing is done the right way. You're gonna have to make the kind of effort and take the kind of concentration and hard work that comes from trying to do something with your right hand so that your left hand doesn't know what you did. It's extreme. It's gonna take a lot of work. It's gonna be hard. And I think for many of us, we probably stop right before that point and go, well, I mean, he wouldn't want me to do anything that crazy to make sure that other people, I'll just try not to do anything on the other end of the spectrum, right? I'll try not to really put it out there too much. But what he says is not that. He says that we are to do it essentially in secret and to make great effort to try to make sure that that happens. Now, the other thing that you see about a Christian right here, which I think is important, is this, that a Christian is somebody who keeps no record of things. We often think of that as they keep no record of wrongs, which is true, but what he's also saying here is that we keep no record of rights. Because if your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing, then what that means is that it has done the thing and you don't even know that you did it. So you don't live as somebody who just did this great thing. You're not doing it so that you can walk away and be abdicated of it next time. You can be proud of yourself and this great thing that you did. That's really the way that he's talking. And that makes sense because um, as Christians who don't have what we have because we've earned it, but simply by the grace of God, we have to recognize that just like we don't keep track of all the the bad things that happen that don't equal out to what we deserve, we also uh, keep, we don't keep track of all the good things that we do, that we do, so that we can boast about them and be proud of them and think slowly over time, over the years that we're better. And that's exactly what we do, right? The more years that we follow Jesus, maybe, we start to add it up and add it up. Man, I'm doing so good. Man, I'm doing so good. And what Jesus is describing is this. He is describing a person who could be a missionary, an evangelist, a pastor, a great mature Christian, somebody who has served and worked and sacrificed and gotten to the point that they've gotten and can wake up tomorrow and still live as a hypocrite if they're not aware of this thing. Because all those good things that they did in the past doesn't really change where they are now. It's an everyday thing. 
Now, the other thing that he says here is he says, so that your giving may be in secret and your is singular, it's not plural. Here's why that matters so much. Because he's saying, and your giving is in secret, and your giving is in secret, and your giving is in secret. What he's not saying is your, all of you, everybody in a group, your giving together is in secret. Now, here's why that matters. Let's say the disciples go out the next day and they go, let's do something nice for somebody. Let's bless somebody. And they go out and bless somebody. They do a, they do a disciple service project. And Jesus is away in the wilderness or something. And they're like, what do we do? Uh, I don't know. Let's just do a service project. So they do a service project. And then they come back. They're sitting around the campfire that night. And they're like, let's all talk about how great that was. And maybe, maybe you highlight the best thing that you had happen. And they go through it and they go, yeah, this is really good. I really feel like we did a lot. I really feel like we made a difference. I really feel like, okay, guys, let's be sure to not you know, make a big deal about this outside the circle, okay? Because, because our giving, what we've done together, let's, let's do that in secret, okay? No, what he's actually saying is this. He's saying what you do individually, you keep to you. He's saying even amongst those in your church body, the bragging and the, and the pride and the, and the visibility. I think what he's really speaking to is the visibility of it because he's talking to a culture in which in the Jewish temple, when you made a big deal about it, you were proclaiming to everyone in that temple. And honestly, and, and maybe we can relate to this, their opinion of you mattered a lot more than the people outside the temple. So you hear this teaching and you go, oh, okay, that's fine. I just, yeah, that's fine. I won't brag about stuff outside there. I'll just brag about stuff inside here. And he said, not in here either. Because for many of us, this is the group of people that we can impress the most with some of these actions and some of these things that we do, right? So he's saying you're giving just you, just for you. That's something that you do for God and between you and God, and you do it in secret. Having lived through um, a couple of different phases even um, in my short time in ministry of the way the church chooses to relate to the world outside of it. Uh, Living through seasons where our idea was if we just built bigger buildings and made bigger churches and got more people and put on a better show, then the world would know that we're here and they would, they would love us and see their need for us. And then going through seasons where it was like, well, I think that we need to actually leave the walls of the church maybe, and maybe they won't do that. And maybe we need to go show them that we care about them. So we'll serve the city and we'll get involved in the city and we'll help in the city and we'll do those things. And having been a part of those kinds of things as well. One of the things that I've seen when I've watched what that stuff leads to and what it accomplishes is that while it is very valuable, one mistake that is often made, that I myself have made, is this. You never do anything without a camera. You never do anything without a testimony and a video and a a photograph and a story and a thing, because we want to make sure that everybody knows that what we did was because of God. But really, what I saw long-term was often that all it did was cause people to see our church as a good place, as good people, rather than to see God as the source of that thing. And so we, even in the church, have to be careful and we have to be what Jesus is saying, which is this. He's saying, just be honest with yourself about your motives. Know your motives. Know what you're wanting to accomplish. Are you doing it for God's kingdom or are you doing it because OCEC wants to be the best at doing this thing? Because they want to be the most loved at doing this thing because they want to feel better about doing this thing. I've had to confess that at times as a pastor that I've wanted that. And I think some of us maybe know what that feels like. And so Jesus Uh, Jesus talks about this and, and he gives them a promise at the end of it, which is this. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. He has just given us one of the hardest challenges he will give us. All these things that you're trying hard to do well, now do them without people knowing about it. But if you do, 
He'll reward you. And you go, okay, all right, hang on a second. I like where this is going. There's a reward. I like rewards. He's Jesus. Big deal. This is probably a really good reward, right? Now, a lot of people have a hard time with this. We go, this doesn't make any sense. Isn't our faith supposed to not be about our interest and our benefit and our reward, right? Well, Jesus talks about reward a lot. Throughout his ministry alone and just in the Gospels alone, he talks about reward. He says um, that those who bear persecution, who suffer insult without bitterness, he says their reward will be great in heaven. That's in the Beatitudes. He says that those who give to one of these little ones a cup of water in the name of a disciple will not lose their reward. At least part of his teaching on the parable of the talents is the idea that the faithful will ultimately reap a reward. And in the parable of the last judgment, he talks about the idea that some will be punished and others will receive a level of reward. This is a hard thing for many in the church. We go, well, that, is, that, is that really a thing? Is that true? Are we interested in this for ourselves? And the fact of the matter is, um, you go back to Genesis and you read, and it makes it very clear. God created us to be incredibly content and fulfilled by him. And there is nothing better than that. And so all the other things that we're kind of hoping would be the reward that maybe aren't God, get sort of dashed those hopes when we realize that what Jesus is talking about here is this, that the reward that is promised, that is apparently so good that we're willing to do all of this, that we're willing to let go of all of this, is the reward is God himself. That's the reward. And we need that. Because if we are going to give to people, and if we're going to help people, and if we're going to sacrifice for people, then that's always going to leave us in debt. It will. One author said it this way, if we love a person deeply and passionately, humbly and selflessly, we will be quite sure that if we give that person all we have to give, we will still be in default. That if we give that person the sun, the moon, and the stars, we will still be in debt. People who are in love are always in debt. This is so true of love, real true love, is giving and knowing that at the end of the transaction that you have less because you gave it to them. Now, for a self-righteous person, that's not true because they found a way to give and then get back right away. And they go, okay, this makes sense. This transaction is good. I like it. It's worth it. And if it's ever not, it's easy. I just won't give. But truly living the way that Jesus is telling us to live means being in debt. It means ending up with less than we started because we gave it away. It doesn't mean if you live at this standard for a while, God will reward you and bring you up here. That's really bad theology. That's not true. The reward is God himself. When we give and serve for the sake of God alone, we get God. And for many of us, that's hard. I was just reading this last week in John. Jesus talks about being the bread of life. People came to him and he said, you're only coming to me because I fed you bread. I'm the bread of life. You should come to me for me because I am better than that thing. 
I am the original bread of life for you that sustains you. See, this is the problem. The more that we look to other people, to what they think of us, and to the other rewards that doing good things can offer us, the more we need those things. The more our life is wrapped up in those things. And when we hear that God is the reward, we go, oh, okay, I guess that's good, maybe. But it doesn't really excite us. It doesn't really seem like something worth actually doing any of this for. Because it's a cycle. The more you care, the more you make it a priority, the more you look to it, the more you live for it, the more you see the value of it and you see the life that comes from it. The more that we do things in front of others, the more we need others, the more we need other things besides God. And we see less and less value in God. He becomes less of the bread of life and he becomes more of like like a day at some kind of an overpriced resort. Like, oh yeah, I could, I could get a vacation. That would be cool. You know what? I'm actually fine. And that's how we feel about it. This is idea of a reward is the motivation for everything the Christian does. And it's, it's, it's put so well in 1 Peter when he writes to the church. He says this, Blessed be, God, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We live for that. We are born again to a living hope. And that living hope is an inheritance. It's something that we get later. And it is apparently so good that it's imperishable, which means it will never go away, it will never die, it will never expire. It is undefiled, which means nothing in this life will ever pollute it or make it less than it is, and it is, it is unfading. Like a shirt, you can wash a million times and it doesn't lose the color. It's unfading. It always stays just as good as it was in the beginning. And it is being kept in heaven for us by God so we will not lose it, which is truly good news. So the reward is that. And he says this reward is so good that it is worth doing these things for, following Christ for. And it makes all the other stuff pale in comparison. And for many of us, that's a hard truth because we go, that's not really how I feel. That's not really the way that my life feels like it's working out. Is that as long as I can focus on this reward, that it will be better. But scripture tells us it's true, and this is what it means to have faith. What it means to have faith is to trust in something, not blindly, and because God hasn't given us reason, because he's given us all kinds of reason to believe this. It's just simply saying my confidence is in something that is coming, that has yet to come, that I might not even experience the moment that I help that person in need, but I know that I will experience it later, and that's worth it. Let's pray. Father, we um, I thank you for how brutally honest Jesus was with his disciples. That we know that we are prone to doing things for the opinions of others. And that for many of us, it is really, really hard to get that challenge of doing something. Something that only you will ever see and will know about. Lord, many of us are wearing masks right now. 
and we're doing it because we believe that we need to be seen a certain way, that we need to be perceived as a certain kind of person. And I pray that you would help those to take those masks off, God. To know that you don't call us to live a way that's simply perception, Lord. That you want us to be known by you. And I pray that for many of us, that the idea of your heavenly reward, of your kingdom that we can experience now, right here, right now, long into eternity, that it would be something that would actually resonate with us so much that we say, I wanna live and sacrifice for this thing, Lord. For many of us, that's hard. So as we worship, I just pray that we would focus on that, on who you are, on your reward, on how beautiful and wonderful you are. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Let's pray. Father, we sing those words to you and confess at the same time that that's often absolutely not true, that we feel that all we need is you. We, we know that all we need is you, but we don't often feel that all we need is you. We feel that all we need is everything else. And Father, we just confess to you because it seems clear from what Jesus is saying here in this passage that um, the worst thing we can do is pretend. Uh, pretend that we're something that we're not. And so even if we, many of us, find ourselves in a place where we, we struggle to need you as much as we probably should, to think about you as much as we should, or to even think about our faith in an eternal sense rather than just think about what it brings us here with people in this life. We just give that up to you and we repent of that and we confess it to you. And we ask that through us acknowledging that, that you would begin to show us the beauty of you eternally, of this um, inheritance and this reward that you promise us, Lord. We are so prone to only see what's around us, the physical, the tangible, the material, and to expect the results to be in that. And so we pray that over this next week, God, that you would just give us a profound sense of desire for the reward that you promise, and that that would lead us to live differently, not the other way around, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week.